Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. On this episode, we're joined again by Dr. Zazie Todd, companion animal psychologist and the author of Wag and Purr, The Science of Making Your Dog and Cat Happy. This time, it's all about dogs. Why we choose the dogs we do, how our dogs interact with us, and how we can give them their best life. Zazie, it is such a joy to have you here with me. You are my favorite speaker when it comes to dogs and cats and science-based everything, from writing on companion animal psychology to your books, Purr and Wag. You are just really science-based, but you make it practical, you make it fun, you make it relevant. And as I have been going through both your books, I am just continuously learning. Like I feel like despite how many years I've done this, it's never ending. And from you especially, I, I have so many great takeaways that I want to talk with you about today. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to chat with you. So Zazie, when it comes to the science of pet adoption and like what makes someone pick one dog over another dog, can you talk about some of the science behind some of those choices? I, I just loved reading this section here and thought it was super interesting. Yeah, and there are lots of things that go into which dog someone is going to pick. And even if they are going to pick a dog, because sometimes people go to a shelter and they're looking at dogs, but they're not actually planning to pick, but maybe they will come home with one. So there are several things that go into which dogs we're interested in, and some are to do with the physical features of the dog, and then some are to do with the behavior. And of course, if we understood more about the behavior of the dog that makes someone more likely to adopt them, then we might be able to increase adoptions. And there's been some really lovely work looking at this, but actually there are not that many behaviors that do make a difference. But one of the things that does seem to make a difference is just having the person interact with the dog. And so I think one of the takeaways from that research is that if someone is showing interest in the dog, t giving them a space in the shelter and maybe a toy that they can use to interact with the dog with is going to make that interaction go better and then perhaps they'll be more likely to adopt that particular dog and say yes you know this this is a good good interaction that we had and we want to bring this dog home whereas if someone's just wandering down and looking through often they're not going to see the dog the dog's not necessarily going to be at the front and people might be quite disappointed if they can't see the dog, if the dog's hiding at the back, or even in some shelters, they have a space to go outside. So they might not even be on the other side of the window that you're looking through. They might have gone to be outside. So people want to be able to see the pets. Um, but I think that thing of trying to trying to make a good interaction happen is probably the thing that will help the most in terms of getting someone to adopt a shelter dog. One surprising bit of research is the part about puppy dog eyes or the dog kind of looking upwards, can you go on a little bit about how that might influence a pet's ability to stand out more from other dogs? Yes, and I love that research. It's really fascinating. And there's been an update since I published the book as well, which is very interesting. So the idea is that if dogs have bigger eyes, then we are more drawn towards them. And it's to do with something that's called neoteny and sorry, um, and looking like they have a baby face. And so bigger eyes, that's more baby like. And this is thought to attract us to dogs. So dogs have a muscle above their eyebrow, and if they raise that muscle, then it makes their eye seem bigger. So there was a piece of research that looked at whether or not dogs were going to be adopted, and it looked at the eye movements that they had. And the dogs that did this particular eye movement were seeming to be adopted more quickly, and they hypothesized that this eye movement is something that we like because it makes the eye seem bigger, and they, that the dog is trying to do it in order to communicate with us. Um, so it's part of their communication towards us. And this is like really fascinating. And I thought this is a lovely piece of research. And so that's what I wrote about in the book. And what's happened subsequently, because this is the way that science works, it's always developing and people do other things too. So subsequently, a team at the University of Lincoln did a study and they thought, is this really a communicative behavior in the dog trying to communicate with people to make these nice puppy dog eyes so that people will want to interact with them 
or is it just to do with where they're looking and their eye movements? So they set up a nice study to test that hypothesis and they had a social condition in which there was a person interacting with the dog and they had a non-social condition in which the dog was getting treats from an automatic feeder instead of from a person and they compared these so if it's a communicative behavior on the part of the dog you would expect this eye movement to happen more when the person's there that's not what happened so actually their results suggest that despite what we thought and despite what we thought was a lovely finding actually it's just to do with the movement of the eyes and where the dog is looking most of the time. So most of the time, it's not actually the dog deliberately making their eyes bigger in order to seem more interesting to us. So I think that's a really interesting, fascinating finding. That is, that's so interesting. Gosh, yeah, as you said, it's just always evolving. As I was reading that, I was thinking of my my dog, Nova, we've had her for about a year. And whenever I put up a social post of her doing, she is like the queen of puppy dog eyes. And she loves to do this, like where she's, you know, like, I mean, it's just a a natural thing. And maybe it is her like having her head down resting and kind of looking up, but it's very endearing and, you know, something that like, I definitely am am drawn to and I, and others seem to be really drawn to that as well. And, but I was thinking about that. I was like, why wasn't she adopted sooner? Because she was in the shelter a really long time for their, for like in comparison to the rate of adoption for other dogs. And I think for her, she probably didn't present very well in her kennel from what I saw. Like I was immediately drawn to her and it was just one of those things where sometimes you just have that dog where you're just like, oh God, I know as soon as I look at them, that's how it was with her. But she also was very like more nervous, hyperactive, uh, couldn't stop moving, very just, you know, unable to really settle down, always had a toy in her mouth. And so I didn't see the puppy dog eyes until I got her home. And then when she was more relaxed, I started to see those, those cute little behaviors that she did that I didn't see in there. And yeah, I I just thought about that. And I was like, I wonder if that maybe was, was part of it is that, you know, and I think that's probably a big problem in general is like, as you mentioned, like how a dog presents in their kennel, whether they're coming up to the front, whether they're more withdrawn. And that's part of what I really love about the whole program with fear free being in shelters now is trying to reduce that fear, anxiety, and stress. So pets in rescue can present more like their normal selves rather than being overly stressed and shutting down or, or like, no, like Nova, I think she, like her stress comes out more like she just is unable to settle. She's really hypervigilant. And yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm really glad that Fear Free has its shelter program and I think it's making such a big, big difference because the shelter is a very stressful environment for dogs to be in and that stress is not so good for them in terms of how they present for people coming to adopt them but also it's potentially going to become a health issue it's not good for their health to be stressed all the time so anything that makes them less stressed is going to help them in more ways than one because they'll be healthier they'll be more likely it's more likely that people will see them you know being themselves as a dog instead of being very very stressed and for example when I adopted Ghost, who's one of the dogs that I, I write about in WAG, we adopted him from Vancouver Animal Control, and he actually had been there for a very long time from their perspective. I think it was about six weeks, but that was an unusually long time for them. And I found that really hard to understand because he was such a wonderful, wonderful dog. But he was a very big dog, so maybe some of it was the fact that he was in the city and really would benefit from somewhere with more space. Um, whereas Bodger, when we adopted Bodger, we just wanted a friend for Ghost and we, we went to the shelter to see him and we said, we don't mind what he's like. We just want to know if Ghost likes him or not. And we took them for a walk together and Ghost did. So we adopted him and we would have adopted him, whatever he was like at that point. We were just like, we need a friend for Ghost. So, you know, I think it really can the experience of dogs in shelters can be really quite varied but anything that helps them to be less stressed is important and we know that enrichment and going for walks makes a big difference and we know that training for dogs in shelters makes a big difference as well in terms of reducing their stress levels Um, and so I'm especially pleased that Fear Free is working in this field because I think it's a point at which dogs are really in a very stressful environment. The whole world has changed and they don't understand why. They don't understand that all these people are trying to help them. And so ways in which you can keep the stress down will help the dog to feel much more comfortable in that environment. 
So you talked some about training right there and how that can impact the dog's level of stress. And I know that's true whether they're in the shelter, they're in the home or wherever they may be. Can you talk a little bit more about how the type of training can impact the way that the dog feels, the way that they behave and their bond with their humans? Yes. So for any dog, any pet dog, we know that the type of training that people do is really, really important for the dog's welfare. Because if people make the mistake of using aversive methods, such as shock and prong collars or leash corrections or yelling at the dog or hitting the dog or alpha rolls, all of those things, unfortunately, it's very bad for the dog's welfare. It has risks for the dog and those risks will be in particular the risks of fear, anxiety and stress, but also the risk of the dog being aggressive, which is very serious because aggressive dogs don't often get given or don't necessarily get given another chance. But in on top of that, it affects the relationship between the dog and the person and you can see how that might be the case because if you're doing something unkind to the dog in terms of because you think it ought to be a way to train them the dog is not necessarily going to associate that punishment with themselves and their behavior they're going to associate it with you and so then that also will color future interactions that you have with the dog too because they will remember that you are this person who did this unpleasant horrible thing to them um, and also on top of that, it can affect whether the dog is feeling optimistic or pessimistic. So if you're using aversive methods, we know from some of the research that that makes the dogs feel more pessimistic compared to dogs trained with reward-based methods. And so the reason that's important is that it's a measure not just of how the dog is feeling in the moment, but it's thought to reflect how the dog is feeling over a period of time. So there's this whole set of ways in which aversive methods are bad for dogs, have risks for dogs. And because we, I think we get dogs as companions, why would you do something to your dog that is going to affect your relationship with them? To me, it makes no sense. The other thing, of course, is that using reward-based methods, so training with positive reinforcement, it works. It's really effective. There is no need whatsoever to use any other type of method. You do not need to use shock collars, prong collars, these corrections, etc. You can do everything with positive reinforcement. And there are also a few studies now which suggest that positive reinforcement seems to be more effective in training dogs than aversive methods. And um, one of the probable reasons for that is simply that it's a better way to motivate dogs. If you're working and you're giving the dog treats for doing the things that you ask, well, the dog's enjoying that. It's fun for them. And it helps to motivate them to do things. And it's much, much better for them. So it's really important to make sure that you're training dogs with positive reinforcement. All of the time, you should be using reward-based methods because we know that most people now, they do use positive reinforcement some of the time. Unfortunately, there are still some people who mistakenly use aversive methods some of the time. And really it's important to stick to just using reward-based methods. It's much, much better for your dog and it works really well. So I, that's an interesting point when you talk about the desire to use or the, the usefulness of using reward-based training only rather than a mix of both rewards and punishment. And I, I for me, I kind of personally relate this to uh, before when I was in an emotionally abusive relationship when I was married. And I remember the counselor saying uh, to me that, like when I said, well, it's it's only bad sometimes. Sometimes it's really good. Like sometimes he's so great and, you know, he's this and he's that and it really makes me feel good. And, that, you know, but then, yeah, for sure, there are those times when it gets really bad and, you know, and and, you know, and I'm not always quite certain why or when that's going to happen, but yeah, it's like, I'm holding on for those good times. And, and I'm like, but he isn't bad all the time. And she's like, well, actually that's even more stressful to you and to your system that it is unpredictable, that you don't know when to predict if it's going to be good, when it's going to be bad. And if it's going to be bad all the time, you start to learn, okay, this is, you know, there, there can be predictable things you learn. Okay. I'm going to avoid this. I'm going to avoid this. But when it's mixed and you're uncertain, it's really hard to avoid those that, you know, it's just that, that uncertainty, that that ongoing uncertainty of like, how do I avoid that punishment or how do I get to that good? And it, it was so uncertain. And I do think of that sometimes with pets in when they are, I think with any type of punishment, but especially when you have that balance, 
I, I sometimes feel like they maybe are in that state that I was in at the time where you just are kind of in the state of like confusion and like angst because you don't know what to predict and you don't know what's going to happen. Have you found that to be true? Yeah. And, and first of all, I'm really sorry that you had those experiences and went through that. But I think your point is absolutely right. And there is some of the research on dog training methods that shows that when dogs are trained using a mix of both reward-based methods and at other times aversive methods, um, physical punishments, for example, actually those are the dogs that come out worse. And the, the idea is that it is because it's unpredictable. And sometimes their person is lovely to them and nice to them and everything's okay. And then other, other times which the dog can't necessarily predict, all of a sudden they're giving them a shock or they're jerking their leash or something like that. And that's a very, very stressful situation for a dog. And it's much, much better if people just use reward-based methods all of the time. It works, works better. It's much better for the dog as well. And I think the other analogy that people often use is looking at the ways that people interact with children as well and the way that we've improved in terms of how we know to interact with children and not to use, not to hit children, for example, when they do do things that are wrong. And yet somehow that hasn't fully filtered through to dogs. And often when I'm talking to people about dog training methods, if they're older people, like my generation or older, sometimes people will then reflect on how they were treated as children and then they will share stories with me of things that happened to them when they were kids that people would hopefully not do anymore or hopefully these days people would know that they shouldn't have done that kind of thing but at the time it was treated as okay and I think the thing is that we just need to keep getting the message out there to keep telling people that it's so so important to use reward-based methods and there's a myriad of reasons why that's so important and it's it's part of a change but it's We've seen a lot of change, but it's still we still need to see a bit more change in that direction. So well said. I, I loved reading through the section that you have in your book, WAG, on training and the different science behind different types of training methods. And you do talk about shot callers and some of the some of the drawbacks to to them or to certain types of punishment-based training or that negative reinforcement. So anything that's really using more like that punitive kind of, of method. So can you go into, because I think sometimes people may justify the use of a shot caller, for instance, because they may think, well, it's needed for things like come uncalled for a dog that's really hard to get to come off leash or the dog that maybe chases livestock. Like, can you go into that a little bit about the actual science behind shot callers and how maybe that's not the case about it being more effective? Yeah, it's not more effective at all. Mm -hmm. But this is one of those arguments that people try to make sometimes. And because of that, scientists actually went and they looked into it. And in the UK, they did a study which had three different groups of dogs. And they focused on teaching them to come when called in the presence of livestock. So they had them in a field with sheep in to do the training. And they had different groups of trainers. So obviously, reward based trainers are not going to use a shot collar at all. So that was one group they only did reward-based training. But when you have people, trainers who will use a shock collar, they had two groups there because they had ones actually using the shock collar for training. And then they also had some of those trainers using positive reinforcement and rewards for training, but not actually using the shock collars. So there were these three different groups of dogs and they fitted all of them with a collar so that someone later on observing the video couldn't see just from looking at the collar if it was an actual shock collar that would deliver a shock to the dog or if it was like a fake shock collar. Of course, they probably couldn't entirely guarantee because sometimes if you shock a dog, the dog is going to have a reaction. So that, that part would have been visible. But they did everything they could to kind of uh, control for what the observers would see when they looked at video later. And they they recruited people to take part in the study and they they randomly assigned the dogs unless the dog's guardian had a strong opinion about which group they should be in because obviously some people really didn't want their dogs to be shocked but there were also some people who actually did want their dog in the shock collar group. Um, so they had these three different groups and then afterwards the scientists looked at all the video of how the training had happened, how well the dogs were doing and first of all, they found signs of stress in the dogs that were trained using the shock collars. So those dogs seemed to be more stressed. 
unfortunately, which is what you might expect from, from the literature anyway. But the other thing, and which speaks exactly against that argument that people sometimes make, is that the dogs trained without the use of the shock collars, the dogs trained by the trainers who only use reward-based methods did better. They, that type of training was more effective. So the dogs in that group, they were better at coming when called. They were also faster to sit when they were asked to sit because some training around sit happened as well. Um, and so this shows that absolutely you do not need to use a shock collar. And in fact, not using the shock collar is the better option because the reward-based training is more effective. So this is one of those studies that shows that reward-based training seems to be more effective than using an aversive method. So the other thing to note about this study is that the trainers who used the shock collars were trainers who were put forward by the Electronic Collar Man Manufacturers Association. So they were trainers who used shock collars in their training routinely. So um, I think that's an important thing to note because, again, that's one of those things that proponents of those collars try to claim that you have to know how to use them. And again, it, this study gives the light of that argument as well because they were trainers who were used to using them and yet they were not as effective in their training. And one of the reasons for that is that the trainers who use reward-based methods seem to be much clearer in their contingencies. It was much clearer to the dog what the dog had to do in order to get their rewards. So it was much more effective. Their, their training was much more effective. And I think it's a really interesting study. And it's also worth noting that just recently it was announced that England will be banning the use of shock collars um, which I was really pleased to hear. And I think that's an important step forward for animal welfare. And it's something that's been talked about in England for a, a long time. So it's about time that it actually happened. And I'm really pleased to see that news come through. Oh, me too. You know, I think it's so inter interesting, I say, but actually it's really, in my mind, it's it's sad. It's really unfortunate that Sometimes, like when we talk about like language that people may use, a lot of times they may use something like, you know, a static reminder or just something that, you know, gets the dog's attention. And I've heard it said it's like the feeling of a shot color is like you you walk across the carpet and you create static and you touch the TV or the wall. And it's like the most is like that kind of shock. And yeah, as we know, it's definitely not that way. And, you know, I even... I've done this multiple times, I think three or four different times now where I've done this kind of, I have a group of friends, for instance, called the trainers, and we all meet and do different training. And we, we sometimes just for fun, you know, have trained each other, but, uh, and have included the, the, you know, times when we've actually done it with a shot collar, just to see what it would actually feel like to be the dog in that situation and how you may respond if you were in a shot collar. And in that situation, it's, voluntary. We know it's going to happen. And, you know, we can opt in. Dogs don't have that choice to opt in. They don't have that it's put upon them. So, I mean, that situation in and of itself gives you more control, which is going to help you feel more relaxed. But even under those conditions of opting in and, you know, I've gone definitely up to the very top level of shock to the, you know, middle. So kind of all, all around and on the neck or on the arm. And, um, you know, people will say things like, oh, what the dog's fur, you know, makes it different. But really, you're putting those electrodes like they have you put them right up towards the dog's neck. So that that's not really a fair argument. Plus, it is on the neck. So it's like so sensitive. And um, but, you know, in that situation, I remember one of the times that, that I did this, it was for actually a, a vet street video that we were going to put together. And I think for legal reasons, they never did because how awful is that to have your, your trainer in a shock collar <laughs> getting shocked. But I wanted to show like, you know, this, it, it actually is a way bigger deal than people make it to be. And so I just had my manager at the time, I was like, okay, I just want you, whenever I do a certain behavior, I want you to shock me. Like, you know, if it's something that you don't want, because that's a lot of times what will happen. The dog that looks at another dog sometimes, or the dogs that bark or lunge at other dogs on leash, you know, they're going to get shocked for something like that. And I, I didn't even know what it was, but it, it, I mean, every single time I was just flying off my feet and like yelping and, and, you know, and after it was like, it was weird. It took me a while to rebuild my relationship with her, even though I wanted her to do this. I asked her to do this. I felt really conflicted about it. And, you know, and then on the other side, training my, my friend, Sarah, uh, who is also a, a fellow fear-free trainer, I trained her on the opposite end. So I was a trainer. She was the, the, the mock dog doing this. And 
afterwards, I just felt so guilty. I felt so terrible. I just kept telling her, Sarah, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I'm like, please, please don't feel bad about me. And I hope this doesn't affect our relationship. But there are just so many emotions that go along with that. So it's not only the the pain, but it's like this angst about that situation. And when I think back to even that room, I remember that room very well. And I remember where I was when I was getting shocked. And I ended up finding out later that I was being shocked for smiling, but I had no idea what it was. And, you know, like I I wouldn't have known had they not told me. And I think that's the same thing that happens to dogs. They don't even necessarily know what it is they're, they're getting shocked for. That's right. They don't necessarily know why they're getting the shock. They don't know what's causing it to happen. And we find that with um, fences as well. When people are using fences instead of an actual physical fence, but they're using an electronic fence of some kind, which will shock them if they leave the boundary. Um, In those cases, we also know that dogs may end up associating the shock with something else that happens at the same time. So it could just be someone going by with a dog or with a kid and you really don't want to be creating negative associations for your dog with other people or other dogs because that can just lead to future behavior issues anyway. But it means the dog isn't necessarily understanding what's going on at all. So it's really unfortunate that people, uh, some people still use shock collars and that I, I think it's really unfortunate that it's still legal to use those here where both of us are um, because they're not good for the dog and there are much, much better options. And if you have much better options, you might as well use them. So another aspect about motivation and training that you go into is looking at different types of rewards and what's more salient or more valuable to a dog versus another type of reward. Can you talk a little bit about that and specifically things like maybe something that someone may use like a petting of the dog on the head or praise for doing a good job versus something like a treat or a toy and the difference that may make for that pet and wanting to do that behavior or learning it faster? There's been some really interesting research on the types of things that dogs think of as rewards because, of course, it has to be actually rewarding to the dog. And I think many people would love it if they could just say good dog or pet the dog. And that was enough to make the dog do the behavior again and again. But there are some studies which show that that doesn't particularly work. And food is a much, much better reinforcer to use with dogs. So this is why most of the time we're using food to train dogs. And there are several studies, actually, different studies by different researchers that have compared directly the use of food to petting or the use of food to praise. And all of them show food works much, much better. And as far as praising the dog and saying, good dog, It doesn't mean anything to the dog unless you already have a history in which you you saying good dog predicts that a treat is going to come. Then they might start looking at you, hopefully, to say, oh, am I about to get a treat? But otherwise, it's just meaningless words to them. So you have to actually find some way to motivate your dog and you have to get used to that idea. And for some people, that's quite a difficult thing because they think that dogs should just do what they tell them. But once you know that you you should be using food to train your dog, it all works much better. And there's even some research that looks at the types of food the dogs like to work for. And one of the studies I really love set dogs up with a runway that they had to run along and they tested the food reinforcement that the dog would get when they got to the other end. So they had um, a bowl either that had a piece of sausage in or a bowl that had a piece of kibble in. And you can probably guess what the result would be that the dogs run faster to get the sausage rather than the kibble. And that was still the case when they replaced the one piece of kibble with five pieces of kibble. And I always like to tell people this in relation to thinking about getting your dog to come when called. They're going to run faster to you if you have better quality treats. And so that's why it's important to do something like to have chicken or roast beef or cheese or tripe stick or whatever. And the other thing is that from a similar study that was done, also using a runway for dogs to run down, some dogs have preferences. So most dogs will work for cheese. Occasionally you will meet a dog who doesn't like cheese, for example. So you have to take account of the dog's preferences too. And one study looked at whether dogs prefer to work always for their favorite food or if they prefer to have a variety. And they used three different foods that the dog really loved. And it varied. So some dogs do like that 
particular treat over and over again. And some dogs prefer to have the variety of the different treats. But over a longer period of time, they thought in the end, most dogs did actually prefer variety. So they can get a bit bored, perhaps, of their most favorite treat and want something else as a, as a change from it too. And I think this shows to us the importance of using food to train dogs and how effective it is. And it just demonstrates how good it is as a way to motivate dogs to do things. And the thing about petting and praise is that Dogs don't necessarily like to be petted, um, especially like if you're reaching for the top of the head or something, you might be accidentally punishing them instead of rewarding them for the behavior that they've just done. So you really have to think about things from your dog's point of view. And food is efficient, it's effective, and it's quick for you to deliver as well. So it works really, really well in almost every training situation. So another aspect that I thought was so interesting, and I'd love you to talk about a little bit more, because I was really having to reread this one section over and over a little bit to really wrap my mind around it. But essentially, you were talking about a study that looked at the a marker signal. So whether it was a beep, or maybe it, may, it could be whatever in a different situation it could be a word that you might use, but how how that that marker signal, so such as that beep, and then the reinforcer that comes right after that, so something like that treat that happens right after that beep, or in this situation, you there was one that had a simultaneous beep and treat given to a dog for doing a task like putting their nose in the correct box. And then in another situation, it, it, I think it was, there was like a one second delay after the dog did the correct behavior where they had the beep and then the treat. Is that right? And then the third situation where there was the, the beep and then one second later, the treat was delivered. Am I saying that right? Yeah, so this is research by Dr. Claire Brown in New Zealand, and she had a really neat setup where the dog was being trained to put the nose in a box, and she had something that detected when it went through. And so then it was set up automatically to give a treat, either right away or after a delay, or with the beep and, and then the treat. And the thing is that the delay doesn't help dogs, basically. Uh, and some of her other research actually looked at people in ordinary people with their dogs in training situations and timed how long it took people to give the treat to the dog. And I think in some cases, it was even up to seven seconds after the dog had done the behavior that they wanted, which is a really, really long time. And it worked much, much better when people were quick in giving the food so that when it was almost immediate that they gave the food after the dog had done the behavior that they wanted. So that comes from the study with the dogs putting their nose in the box, but also from some of her observational work as well. And so it's something that we need to practice. So for people who aren't used to training dogs, it takes a while to get used to de to delivering the treats that quickly. But the more quickly you deliver the treats, the more effective it is because then it's more easy for the dog to associate the behavior they just did with earning the treat. And if you think of a delay of up to seven seconds, especially if you're working perhaps with a young dog who's quite bouncy and you've asked them to sit and then if you wait seven seconds they're probably doing a whole load of other behaviors as well they're probably jumping up again maybe coming to sniff you maybe turning around and so then it becomes much more difficult for them to figure out that the thing that earned them the treat was actually the sit because they've done all these other behaviors since so it's really important to be quick in delivering the treats to the dog yeah and i found that really interesting because in there too, I, I believe you interview her after and she's saying that one thing that, that might be helpful is, I mean, essentially to summarize, I, I think from what I took away from it is the focus on delivering that treat really fast. So being less concerned about having excess body movements. So such as like the hand moving because of the, so the hand reaching towards the treat bag may actually be one of the primary like marker signals that may be happening, even like subconsciously, the person may not even realize that. And so the dog's like, Ooh, I'm earning a reinforcement because they're doing this or they move, move their body. And I remember when I was first getting into dog training and how it was so important to be super still to have that marker signal. So such as the click or the word, wait one second, then deliver that reinforcement, wait one or two seconds, then deliver that reinforcement. But this goes a little bit against that because it's, it sounds like more so, even though I'm sure that the, those things are important in some ways, it seems like even more so it's really important to get that reinforcement to the pet fast. Yes, it makes it 
seem really that the speed is important mm -hmm. and I think for us training to be dog trainers we want to be really clear in our body language because that's what helps to make the contingencies clear to the dog and also when we're practicing you have to be really clear um, so but that one second delay I think it's it's okay that works it's a longer delay that would be much much worse but for us learning to be dog trainers it's so important because otherwise you start reaching for your and you might even be reaching for the treat in your bait bag or in your pocket before the dogs finish the behavior, for example. So it's just really important to be very, very clear in your body language. And when we're practicing, certainly it does help to have that delay because it stops you from having those accidental tells which might happen at the wrong time. And so you want it to be very, very clear to the dog what's happening. But it is important to get that food in them quickly. And of course, another way to make sure that that happens is to position feed, which is one of the things that Jean Donaldson loves to do and taught me to do, which means that you're going to feed the dog when they're in the position that you want them to be in. And so you're still wanting to be quick in delivery of the treat, but you're making sure that the dog gets it in the position that you want. So it's really, really clear to the dog that this is the thing that, that gets them the treat. And if you're a bit slow and the dog pops out of that position, then you just ask them to get back into it before you actually deliver the treat. So that's the way in which you can do that. And that works. And I think that works really, really well. Yeah, I found that very interesting because I know that when I'm teaching pet parents how to do something like use a clicker and treats or just use their marker signal, such as a word like good or yes or treat, and then delivering that treat. In the past, a lot of times I was focusing on the body being really still. And while that is important, I think that that aspect of, and I definitely have practiced that, but I don't think I've emphasized it as much as I could and should after reading this study and reading your information on really making sure that that treat does get delivered fast. And sometimes that can be tricky, but as you said, that the position feeding that can make it easier and even just practicing the aspect of giving treats, even though it may feel really boring to the person, I think that that is all the more important and just makes me realize why that is so important after having read this. Yes, and if you're using a clicker, again, you can practice that too. You can practice the click the treat and not reaching for the treat until you've done the click first. And I think it's just useful to practice those mechanics and you can practice that separately from having the actual dog in front of you as well as with the dog in front of you. And maybe, like you say, it's not the most interesting and fun thing to do, <laughs> but it is a good way to help to improve your own, your own technique. So let's talk a little bit about taking your pet to the vet. And you have some great information in here about why it's stressful, why pet owners may not see the value in it as much as perhaps they could or should. Can you talk a little bit on that? Yeah, because dogs have to go to the vet. It's a really important thing. But there's some really interesting research that looked at what people expect from the preventive consultation. So this is the probably annual, maybe every six months consultation that you go to. And people often seem to think that that's just about getting the vaccinations if they're due. Um, and that study also spoke to veterinarians about what happens in there. And it, so there was a bit of a mismatch between what ordinary people thought would happen and what the vet thought was important. And there were some things that people would miss. And one of those things that people often miss is if their vet is overweight or obese. And of course, that's something that the vet can check at that appointment. Um, another thing that people often miss is if there's something going on with the dog's teeth which again was something that the vets in the study spoke to as being an important thing for them to check at that consultation. Whereas some of the dog owners, especially the more experienced dog owners, didn't really expect to get very much from that consultation. So I think it suggests that people need more information about what to expect and just how important that consult is, because we know that if people find it difficult to get their dog to the vet then maybe they're going to skip that kind of thing but it's so so important for picking up on some of those preventive things um, it's not just about checking that they're up to date on their vaccinations and then how, how does stress impact whether or not the pet goes to the vet and what their experience is like when they're there so many dogs do find it stressful 
and that has an effect in part on the dog's guardian because if it's stressful for the dog it's stressful for the person too and so surveys suggest that people say they're less likely to take their dog to the vet if they've found it a stressful experience in the past or maybe they will delay taking their dog to the vet instead which means that if they've got a condition it has time in which it's going to get worse before they actually get to the vet so that's one thing that's really unfortunate and the other thing is that we know that dogs find it stressful people say they even find it stressful in the car once the car is turned in the direction and the dog's figured out they're going to the vet people see signs of stress in their dog at that point never mind in the waiting room now not everyone has a waiting room these days it's much more common now for people to wait in a car and then go straight into the exam room but it used to be the case that and it sometimes still is that dogs would have to wait in a room with lots of other dogs and maybe quite a small space and other animals too cats or rabbits or exotic animals and that in itself is quite a stressful experience so the research shows that dogs do find that stressful too and I think one of the things that Fear Free has done has really helped to take that step out of the process um, and it really makes a big big difference to the dog's stress levels um, and I think that really helps it helps the dog but it also helps the person and obviously it helps the vet team too because um, some of the research suggests that dogs are much more likely to be aggressive or to bite or air snap if they're actually stressed in that situation. So reducing the dog's stress makes a big, big difference. Absolutely. Amen on that. So I, I really liked this study that you have in here about when it comes to the going to the vet with your pet, that actually comforting your pet can be very helpful and it can help to lower the stress. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think sometimes we get that misconception that if you coddle or comfort your pet, that you can reinforce that fear. But can you really talk about what's what's actually going on and how that could help the pet? Yeah, I found that a really interesting study. So people were given instructions of how to interact with their pet in in a vet exam and some of them were allowed to comfort the pet they were told that they should comfort the pet if they thought the pet needed it and some of them were told to stand at a different distance so they couldn't comfort the pet and they couldn't actually touch the, the pet at that point and in most of those cases the dogs that were comforted by their guardian did better as in they were less stressed and I think that's important because Quite often people have expected the opposite or they've said the opposite in the past. And it used to be said that you shouldn't use. I mean, I, I hate that people used to say this, but they thought it was the right thing. People would mistakenly say that you should not comfort a fearful pet. But actually, this is one of those studies that shows that if your pet wants comforting, then you absolutely should comfort them. And it does help and it does help to reduce the stress. There were a few people who did things that perhaps were not likely to be comforting to the dog. And so there were a few people, for example, who held the dog's collar, which maybe they thought was helping the vet, but it didn't help with the dog's stress. So that's one of the things that didn't help. Whereas patting the dog gently and in a calm way and talking nicely to the dog um, does help to reduce their stress in that situation. And I think that's a really nice thing to know. One thing I thought was really interesting in here is when you talk about touch sensitivity and it, it, I mean, you have so much in here about, for instance, like why we shouldn't get pets from pet stores. And one, you know, one aspect of that is that a dog that's taken from a pet store that's, that's from, you know, likely from a puppy mill that goes into that pet store, that they can be more touch sensitive along with other things you have in there, like be more aggressive and all kinds of things. But, you know, there are a lot of dogs, it just can be more touch sensitive and it can be based on, you know, certain aspects of their body that are more sensitive than others or, or a learned history. What I thought was really interesting was where there was that study that looked at, I believe it was greyhounds and I can't remember the other type of dog where it looked at dogs that, that were brushed with a rubber brush which I, I, I don't know which kind that was, but it makes me think of like the Zoom Groom by Kong is a one that I, I often use with, with my dogs, for instance. And so with that, the dogs that were more accustomed to being handled and being brushed, or I think it was the greyhounds that were less likely to be brushed on a regular basis. And they were brushed in different areas that included, it was like the saddle area, I think 
the chest and in the tail and yeah, and how all of those were, they didn't seem like the dog had a preference on where they were brushed. And also they'd all seem to have a positive effect, which I thought that was really surprising. What, what did you think about that? And, and tell us about other aspects of that that maybe I missed. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that these different areas in which the dogs were brushed, they seemed to like it. But I think the researchers knew what kind of brushing to do. So they were going for calm, long, slow, slower movements. Um, and I think that helped really, because of course we all know dogs that don't like to be brushed or do have touch sensitivity. But I thought that was really interesting because it shows, again, it's another study that shows there are times when petting can help to calm a dog down and help them to feel uh, to feel better and more comfortable. So I thought that was a nice finding there. And the other thing about touch sensitivity is it seems there could be a genetic component to it that we don't fully understand as well. And I think it's always important, whatever type of behavior we're talking about, to remember that there is always this interaction between genetics and the socialization and the dog's learned history of things as well. So even if your dog does have like a lot of touch sensitivity is not your fault. You shouldn't be blaming yourself for it because there's a whole range of different things that go into that, including genetics and early life experiences as part of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is such an interesting area. Like as you talk about genetics, like I, I think of our little pug, Bruce, the, our late pug, Bruce, he was just the best, but he, he was interesting when I was studying with, I, I was doing like a, a, what would you call it? Shadowing of Dr. Nicholas Dodman at the um, Tufts Clinic. And it was interesting hearing some of the things that he had there with different dogs, but, but he was looking some into dogs that perhaps maybe display characteristics that are similar to autism and how they may be a little bit more touch sensitive. And I showed him a video that I have on Bruce. It's, it's up on Vet Street. I can, I can have it linked in the episode here, but how Bruce was very, very sensitive to touch, like more so than a normal dog. And so for him, if you just started to pet faster or certain areas, it's almost like his body would be on fire. And it was like, oh, like you'd see, it's like, it was just overwhelming, like really overwhelming for him. And he had other characteristics too, that made it seem that he may have certain characteristics that could make him a candidate when Dr. Dobbin looked at him, that he may have some of those autism characteristics, which I thought that was really interesting because Bruce was just a very unique, very sensitive dog. And it, it helped make a little bit of sense of maybe some of the things we were going through with him. But what have, have you found on that? And and what do you think about, I mean, I know that the, like there's so much research that's coming and only so much has been done so far, but have you explored that area as well of, of different types of, of human um, things like autism that are potentially also shown in dogs as well? I think it's a really interesting field and I think mm -hmm. it's one of the ways in which research on dogs might ultimately be able to help people and I think maybe one of the nicest examples of that actually is the dog aging project looking at and, and other projects looking at senior dogs and the things that help senior dogs, which I think ultimately also will help helped us to give seniors better and longer lives as well, senior people. And I think that's really important and really interesting. And I love Dr. Nicholas Dobman's book. I've temporarily forgotten the name of it, but we read it with my book club one time and found that a really interesting read. But I think it's it's one of those fields. There's so much work, interesting work being done and still so much more to be done. So I think these are questions that we can watch and see what people find. And it's going to be really fascinating to see what the results are. Another area I thought was really interesting is when we think about rewarding dogs and having something such as tug, for instance, you'll see that a lot, especially with working dogs, that tug can be one of those things that, that is like their big reward. But one thing I thought was really interesting was the section in here that talks about how in some situations when dogs are given a lot of obedience commands or they have a lot of corrections and tug is also incorporated into that session, that tug itself can actually be stressful. Because I think in those situations, it's less fun for the dog. It's mm -hmm. not so much a game as a situation in which they're being told what to do. And so there's been some interesting research on tug because there is that study. It shows that using the commands makes it less fun for the dog. And I think in general, when people are playing 
with the dog. You're not telling your dog what to do in that point. You're meant to both of you be having fun together. And I think some people are better at playing with dogs than others. But, you know, if you find it awkward, you can just practice and keep doing it and you'll get much, much better at it. So it's not something that people can't learn, but there are some people who go into it with a view in which they are telling the dog what to do. And, and that's not so much fun for the dog because it's important for dogs to have opportunities to play. And we know that when dogs have those opportunities to play with their guardian, their owner, it helps to build the relationship. It's one of those things that helps to build a good relationship with the dog, whether it's tug or rough and tumble play or fetch or whatever type of play you want to have with your dog. It's a really important thing for you to do together and it helps to improve your relationship. So can you talk about some of the cues that, or different body movements that people can do that are more likely to encourage their dog to play with them? Yeah, so one of the fun ones is actually to imitate the dog. So we know that dogs do a play bow, and although there's still research going on into that, that's an important part of play. It's one of the play signals that they do. So their front paws are, are down, but their bum is up in there, their, their butt is up in the air, and it's a really lovely signal for a dog. Sometimes people will do that to the dog. Um, but sometimes just having jerky movements or mm -hmm. surprising movements or just waving the arms around, that kind of thing, just being quite playful yourself and loose and relaxed in your in your body movements is a good way to help to encourage your dog to play with you. And just having fun with it yourself, I think, as well, is is important too. So what do you think about the aspect of so we, there's attachment theory for people, for instance. So that is like, I mean, anytime I'm listening to my podcasts on dating or relationships, attachment theory is huge. I love that we're doing more on that with pets as well. And I loved your research in here about being a, a safe base for your pet and also having that secure attachment so that way they can feel more comfortable in situations that are maybe more stressful. But can you talk about how a pet may be extra comforted by their pet owner, for instance, in a strange situation, or how that pet owner can even be a source of comfort, even in, in more of the familiar, like being in their home, for instance, when a person comes over, like how that pet is influenced by their pet owner. And the research on attachment, I find it really fascinating. I love it because it comes originally from research on human infants, and now it's applied to dogs and also cats. And it shows that dogs form an attachment relationship with their person. And what that means is, one of the things it means is that they, the person is a safe haven for them that they can go back to if they feel stressed and a secure base from which they can go to explore. And some of the research on this has used um, something that's called the strange situation, which is based on studies with human infants and it has a very fixed way of doing things but they put the dog in a situation where there is something that will make them feel just slightly unsure like not scared but just a little bit unsure and typically what they would use is a fan with streamers attached so the streamers blow out in in the in the breeze from the fan and the, the dogs are typically unsure because they haven't ever seen anything like this before not all dogs some dogs are just super confident and then they can't take part in the study any further um but then the dog is a little bit unsure and what we see is that they look to their guardian to see how is my person responding to this and usually that person has been given instructions by the experimenter by the scientist so they've been told either to act like this is nothing to be afraid of this is really nice or to act like oh actually i'm not so keen on this and so they will look to their person and see how the person is interacting or acting and then their own behavior the dog's behavior will change according to what the guardian's behavior is and this is showing us that the the, the person is a useful source of information and they're treating that person as an attachment figure and what this does is actually it explains the research that we mentioned earlier about how the person being with the dog and comforting the dog in the vet can help them to feel better because it means that when the dog is in a stressful situation then the dog's guardian actually is a secure base for them and helps them to feel more secure and I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind and to remember and we also talk about dog training methods and some of the research shows that if people use aversive training methods such as leash corrections then unfortunately the dog is less likely to have a secure attachment to them it actually affects the dog's attachment to their guardian and it's not so much that 
using reward-based methods builds that attachment. It's that using aversive methods seems, according to the research, actually to damage that relationship. So it helps to give us a framework for understanding how dogs interact with us. And it just shows how important it is for us to see ourselves as someone who should help the dog not be too stressed, to make sure that they're not too stressed in any particular situation, to be watching them and to help them out if they need help, basically. Can you talk about how dogs are attuned to human emotions? And I loved in here how you talk about when a person is humming, for instance, in this experiment versus when they are crying and how the dogs like seem to be stressed by that situation. And, you know, in this, even in the situation when the dog doesn't go to the pet owner or can't get to them because they're separated, it can create quite a bit of stress and how crying, for instance, is more likely to prompt a, a more immediate response from the dog than another action. But I thought that was really interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, there are several studies that look at how dogs understand our emotions. One of them simply had people pretend to cry or instead of pretending to cry, they would hum. And this was looking to see if dogs would actually go to comfort people because people often have stories about when they're sad and their dog comes to comfort them. And I know certainly I can think of times where my dogs have done that and my cats. So it was a way to test that. And, and by humming, that was like a neutral condition to see if the dog would come to the person always or only when they were crying and the dogs did seem to be going when the person cried they were did seem to be trying to comfort them so this confirms what people have thought was happening in that situation and then there are other times when they've tested what happens when the person seems to be in trouble will the dog go to help um, and they've set up some quite interesting scenarios in which the person either appears to be trapped or just falls over and pretends to be lifeless the only thing is i think dogs probably can tell um because certainly when they they did that the dogs did not necessarily go to help get help um sometimes they just seem to be having a nice time so i think it depends on the situation and we do have to give dogs credit for understanding what the situation really is like um and i think it's something that we need a, a bit more research on still but certainly they seem very sensitive to our emotions and very good at reading our emotional response to things Yes. And I always think about the things that they are perceiving that we don't even, even realize, like, you know, smell of like adrenaline, for instance, or perhaps they can sense something like cortisol spike. I've thought about that before, like even with dogs, when I used to do some training with Dr. Wailani Sung, and sometimes we'd get some really aggressive, very aggressive dogs that would come in for a veterinary behaviorist consult. And I would be sitting with her and trying to, you know, just be very calm. And for the most part, I, I was pretty calm and relaxed, but there were a couple of times where the pet owner came in and they were not very diligent about keeping their dog on leash. And I think almost wanted to get a reaction from the dog in the consult. And so I'm trying to do everything that I know to do to be a non-threat, but I, it was the weirdest thing. Like for instance, there was this one time with this, this, um, black wiry dog. And I, you know, something like even since like now I have a great, so it actually was a German shepherd, a black German shepherd. And I love German shepherds for the most part, but I had to get back to my love of German shepherds after that situation, because it was, it was so scary that one experience I had, because I felt like I had so little control where this dog was in my face, barking, 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 and then like, and had a multiple bite history. And the guy wasn't putting the dog, or wasn't grabbing the leash. And then um, it was just one, and I couldn't speak because if I were to speak, move, I knew that the dog was likely to definitely go in for that, that uh, finality of, of probably the bite right there. And so I felt frozen, but it was interesting in that situation because anytime I mean, it happened multiple times before, thankfully, you know, Dr. Sung was able to, you know, help control the situation and, and get the guy to get the dog. But it was the weirdest thing because I would start to feel these feelings of fear rise in between each time that the dog would react to my face. And as I would feel that fear rise, uh, and that's, that's like, like that feeling of like, you know, where you just get like the you know, hair standing on ends, like where you just get this whole shiver that goes up your spine, even as much as you're trying to be still and calm and relax. And, uh, but every time I felt that feeling right then the dog would react. And so I thought about that after I'm like, I wonder if I was like, if I, and who knows if it went both ways, but if it was 
me perceiving something in the dog, or probably even more likely it was the dog perceiving something in me. And maybe there was a tell in my body language and a change of posture. I don't know, change of breathing. Um, even, you know, and at the time I was trying to do my deep breathing, my yoga breathing, and just trying to be really relaxed in that stressful situation. But I thought about that, you know, maybe it was even something that I couldn't see or control, such as those, those stress hormones in the body that were rising. So have, have you looked into that? I think that's quite possible. And I know there is some research, but unfortunately, I can't remember the details of it right now. Um, but I do think when we feel stressed, it does seem that dogs are able to recognize it. And in that case, that sounds like a very, very stressful experience. And I think the dog and the dog's guardian were both very lucky that first of all, that they had gone to such brilliant people, Dr. Wailan Sung and yourself to help because that makes a big, big difference. And as you say, if you have moved differently in that situation with the dog right there, it could have resulted in a bite. And I think we know that dog bites are a big deal. Many, many people get bitten by dogs every year and it's a slightly different topic but I think being able to recognize those signs is helpful and it's perfectly normal to feel stressed in that situation and more of a worry would be if someone didn't recognize those signs because a lot of people don't recognize when a dog is feeling that stressed and then that does put them at greater risk of bite because they don't know to be careful or just to keep completely still like like you were doing um or for children, like we teach children to to be a tree in those situations when there's a dog running around and, and it's potentially a bit risky for them because if you keep very, very still, then the dog is going to be less interested in you. And as you say, there are probably lots of different cues that they can pick up on the body language, the breathing, where you're looking, um, and possibly also changes in hormones that maybe they can detect because they have such amazing noses as well. And the other thing, though, is I think I always want people to not feel guilty if they're feeling emotions, because we know there are situations in which our own dog can induce various emotions in us. If we think of times when someone has a reactive dog, people can feel sometimes quite stressed in those situations. And they can find it very difficult and that that's a perfectly natural response and I think it's important that people don't feel guilty for that because it doesn't help and you're just doing your best in those circumstances and I think people used to say that you had to it's part of the old-fashioned ideas about dog training that you weren't supposed to recognize those emotions and you were supposed to according to old old-fashioned ideas you were supposed to be dominant or the leader and not show weakness or anything like that and we know that those ideas are totally bunk not related at all to anything that we should be doing but there's still a hangover of that I think sometimes when people are talking about these situations so sometimes people do feel guilty that they feel stressed or they find these situations difficult and it's normal to feel frightened sometimes when a dog is is growling or misbehaving as we would people call it um, because you might be at risk of a bite and it's normal to find it stressful if your dog is lunging and barking on leash and some of the research shows that those negative emotions that people have they, they can get in the way of the training that people are doing and the best trainers are those who will help people to understand those emotions and help people learn coping skills to deal with them and with the situations in which they occur um, and that makes people more likely to stick to using positive reinforcement so I think it's important to acknowledge those emotions and that sometimes owning a dog is an emotional experience for us as well as for them, whatever they're going through. Um, and that can help us to interact better with the dog and to stay on track with the training. I, th I think that's so well said. And definitely, I know after that situation, I, I kind of did feel that feeling of like guilt, like, God, I've worked with, you know, dogs. So I should be, you know, why, why did, why did I feel such fear and, but it doesn't even make sense because now I look back and I'm like, well, duh, it makes sense why, I mean, it's just a natural reaction to feel fearful in that situation and to have those feelings. But, you know, I, I definitely purposefully gave myself grace and also prescribed myself in a way, uh, puppy classes, because I, at that point in time, I was working with so many dogs that really had some severe issues. And I was like, you know, I just need to get around some happy dogs too. And just some little, so I did some puppy classes and helped myself to like kind of recover. And then, you know, happened to get around some great shepherds who, you know, Kona, this one dog I absolutely fell in love with, who's just, uh, 
this little puppy dog of a, of a shepherd. And, uh, you know, I think that that helped, but it's, it's hard because it's like that single situation that was so scary. It definitely took me a while to recover. And I can only imagine how that must be for pets because they can't reason through it the same way that we can. They can't talk through it the same way. And so it's just a whole other level for them. Yeah. And isn't that a great analogy for dog training that after it happened, you fixed yourself as it were with puppies and nice friendly German shepherds. Yes. And if you think of how we interact with uh, reactive dogs who are afraid of other dogs on leash, for example, we want to keep them at a safe distance. We want to give them lots of positive experiences around other dogs. It's the same kind of thing, really. So it's it's a perfect analogy for helping the dog feel safe as well and making sure that they have lots of positive experiences instead. And those positive experiences will help them to recover faster next time something negative like that happens. And we do know there is research that shows that when young dogs have something negative happen with another person or with another dog that that does affect them for the future going forward and so it's really important to try to avoid those situations when you can and if you can't to recognize that it's happened and to do something about it to help make sure that the dog has had lots more positive experiences that will set them up um, should something negative happen again in the future. Zazia I could go on all day talking to you you are just a a whole like bank of wisdom and it's in, it's ever expanding. I know that I love reading up on your blog and I just subscribed to your podcast today. I saw that you had started that. So yay. We'll make sure to link that too. And so I know that, that your wisdom will just keep expanding and growing and you'll be sharing it with all of us, but do you have any final words of wisdom for all of us listening? Actually, I would just like to say I've been thrilled to chat with you. I'm a huge fan of yours and of everything that happens at Fear Free. And I think it's so, so important to be doing all of those things that will reduce fear, anxiety and stress for dogs and cats. And it makes such a big difference to their lives. So I'm very grateful to you and to your father and to everyone on the Fear Free team for all that they do there. And I think the more that people do that and follow that kind of approach, the better, because the less dogs are stressed, the, the much better the better it is for their health, their physical health and their psychological health. And also for the dog's guardian too. It makes such a big difference. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Zazzy. And for anyone who hasn't read WAG or Purr yet, I highly recommend. These are incredible books by Zazzy. I like literally I was showing her, I have it highlighted all throughout, marked up like, and I'm going to be rereading it again because I just, I learned so much and so much practical information in there too. So Highly recommend those books. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in every two weeks as we explore more about your pets. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any of our upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's the number three, the word one, and the word O. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.